0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
1: Daughters of the Mad Monk, I'm Jason Horton.
0: I'm Rebecca Lieb.
1: And this is Ghost Town.
2: You probably already know the name Gregory Rasputin. You know his face. He has a long beard. He's kind of tall. That famous photo of him in black and white has a very intense stare. He looks very creepy. There's a hand held high in the air. He's got a long, bushy beard. Or maybe you know him as the culty advisor to the crumbling Romanov Empire with Anastasia and the mysteries around that family. Or maybe you know him from his strange reputation of being unable or unwilling to die. These are all bound up in the legacy of Gregory Rasputin and are both untrue and very true. While Rasputin's reputation lives between truth and fiction, larger-than-life spiritual magnetism and sinister compulsive villainy his family legacy is just as strange and infamous in its own dark way. Today we're talking about Rasputin's two mysterious, somewhat tragic, yet amazing daughters, Maria and Varvara Rasputin. As a refresher, let's go over a bit about Rasputin's fucking insane life. Of course, we could do many podcasts just about Rasputin himself, But I think a lot of it is hard because it's hard to know the difference between fact and fiction, and a lot of it is bound up in the Romanovs, whom we've talked about extensively in the past. Uh, The House of Special Purpose is one such episode that I'm very proud of um, and really takes you to this specific moment in history where Rasputin is very powerful and has a lot of political and religious reach. Grigory Yefimovich Rasputin was likely born around January 21, 1869, to peasant farmers living in the small Russian village of Pokrovskoye. Hopefully, I'm saying that correctly. In 1886, Rasputin traveled to Abalak, Russia, about 1,700 miles from Moscow, where he met and married a peasant named Paskovia Dubrovina. Paskovia stayed in Pokrovskoye throughout Rasputin's rise and was massively devoted to her husband until his death. The two had seven children, though only three survived to adulthood, Dmitri, born in 1895, Maria, born in 1898, and Varvara, born in 1900. In 1897, before Maria is born, Rasputin got very into religion— and decided to leave Pokrovskoye semi-permanently. Despite being 28 and having a wife of 10 years and a growing family, Rasputin has a vision of the Virgin Mary and believes he has to spread the word of God throughout Russia. Though some experts say he left to escape punishment for his role in a horse theft. You decide what you want to believe. For the next five years or so, Rasputin drinks, has rousing conversations, leads prayers, and develops a devoted circle of followers who thinks he is a conduit to God. His followers are family members, peasants, miscellaneous others who prayed with him while in Pokrovskoye and while traveling. He immediately drew suspicion from area priests for his holding of secret prayer meetings that seemed honestly a little too sexy for comfort. Rumor had it that female followers were ceremonially washing Rasputin before prayer, that the group sang strange songs, and even that Rasputin had joined the Kalisti, an occult Russian Orthodox sect whose rituals were rumored to include self-flagellation and sexual orgies. Word of the sexy, dangerous evangelist Rasputin began to spread in Siberia during the early 1900s. In 1904 or 1905, he traveled to the city of Kazan, where he became known as a healer and problem solver, along with a priest. Of course, healing rumors also came with suspicions that Rasputin was having sex with women followers. But it was 20th century Russia, so people did not really care. He then got in with a Siberian monastery called the Seven Lakes, as well as a local church official called Archimandrite Andrei, and a bishop named Christanthos, who gave him a letter of recommendation to Bishop Sergai, the rector of the St. Petersburg Theological Seminary, at the Alexander Nevsky Monastery, and arranged for him to travel to St. Petersburg. There, Rasputin was introduced to church leaders, including a man named Archimandrite Theophan, who was connected in Russian court and served the Tsar. Theophan was so impressed with Rasputin that he invited him to stay at his home and got him into the highest Russian circles. And it was the perfect time for Rasputin to converge upon St. Petersburg. At that point, spiritualism was kind of chic in Russian court to begin with, so the aristocracy already had an open mind, a fascination, and were accepting of a lot of occult and fringe ideas. This all culminated in Rasputin meeting Tsar Nicholas— Tsarina Alexandra and their five children on November 1st, 1905, and a couple times afterwards. At some point, the royal family, specifically the notoriously humorless and very Christian Tsarina Alexandra Romanov, became convinced that Rasputin possessed the miraculous power to heal Alexei Nikolaevich, Tsarevich of Russia, the youngest and only male heir to the Romanov dynasty. Due to probably a lot of royal inbreeding, Alexei was born a hemophiliac. Hemophilia is a genetic blood condition that prevents blood from clotting. In the fall of 1912, the eight-year-old prince suffered a severe bruise after knocking his thigh in a boat. Within a month, Alexei's condition had worsened to the point where he was given the last rites of the Russian Orthodox Church. In complete desperation, Alexandria sent for Rasputin, who was then in Siberia via telegram asking him to pray for Alexei. Rasputin wrote back quickly, telling Alexandra that, quote, God has seen your tears and heard your prayers. Do not grieve. The little one will not die. Do not allow the doctors to bother him too much. Alexei's bleeding stopped the following day. Dr. S.P. Fedorov, one of the physicians who attended to Alexei, admitted that, quote, the recovery was wholly inexplicable from a medical point of view. There are a lot of theories why Alexei recovered. Um, One of the predominant ones is that the doctors left him alone. He got some time to heal. Later, Dr. Fedrov admitted that Alexandra couldn't be blamed for seeing Rasputin as a miracle man. Quote, Rasputin would come in, walk up to the patient, look at him and spit. The bleeding would stop in no time. How could the Empress not trust Rasputin after that? Despite his weird, coincidental healing power, Rasputin wasn't making more friends in court, and rumors were flying. He was accused of being a heretic, a rapist, influencing the Tsar's policies, and even having an affair with the Tsarina herself. He was also rumored to have been inappropriate with two of the teenage princesses, Olga and Tatyana. Oh, and also in every source that I researched for this episode, they said that he drank too much dessert wine. Rasputin loved dessert wine, and that's just something that I thought all of you should know. On July twelfth, 1914, a 33-year-old peasant woman named Chionia Guseva attempted to assassinate Rasputin by stabbing him in the stomach outside of his home in Pokrovskoye. Rasputin was seriously wounded, but had surgery and recovered. In December 1916, a group of nobles led by the flamboyant Infamously cross-dressing Prince Felix Yusupov, Grand Duke and Dmitri Pavlovich, and right-wing politician Vladimir Perishkovich decided to finish the job, mostly to get more power and influence themselves. Yusupov invited Rasputin to his home shortly after midnight, and, showing him to the basement, gave him tea and cakes laced with cyanide. Rasputin initially refused the cakes, but then began to eat them and, to Yusupov's surprise, was completely unaffected by the poison. After ingesting massive amounts of cyanide, Rasputin then asked for some wine, which was also poisoned, and proceeded to drink three glasses. At around 2.30 a.m., Yusupov excused himself to go upstairs, where his fellow conspirators were waiting, frustrated that Rasputin wasn't fucking dead yet. Yusupov, pretty fed up himself, took a revolver back down to the basement and shot Rasputin once in the chest. The conspirators then drove to Rasputin's apartment, where one of the men wore Rasputin's coat and hat in an attempt to make it look as though Rasputin had returned home that night. Then, when Yusupov went back to his home, he went down into the basement, where Rasputin leapt up and attacked him, chasing him upstairs. In the courtyard, Parishkovich shot Rasputin, and he collapsed into a snowbank. The conspirators then wrapped his body in cloth, drove it to the Petrovsky Bridge, and dropped it into the Malaya-Nevka River. Rumor had it that Rasputin, who was thought to have a 12-inch penis, was castrated, and his preserved and jarred penis passed around to different museums over the years. Again, I'm not sure exactly when that took place, um, or where that rumor started, But, in a formal autopsy taken after his death, which officially was drowning, it showed that his genitals were still preserved. Not as fun of a story, I know. Rasputin was buried on January 2nd in Moscow. None of his family was reportedly involved, and in March of 1917, Rasputin's body was exhumed and burned after the Tsar abdicated the throne. Of course the romanovs themselves were assassinated on the 16th of july 1918 and the daughters of rasputin were lost in the shuffle of history or were they no of course they weren't that's why we're doing an episode on them but for now take that in and let's take a break
3: you can live out your master chef dream when you find a professional on angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs
2: How's it going for you today?
1: How's it hanging, oh. dudes?
2: <laughs> okay. Oh, whoa, whoa! Okay, we got a cool guy in our hands. Great, great.
1: We want to say hello to anyone who's listening. Mm-hmm. Spreading the good word, mm-hmm. sharing. Please with your neighbor.
2: Tis the season, baby, and
1: they give it right back. Mm. And you're like, you don't have a receipt, and you're no, like, I didn't like, think I needed a receipt.
2: Yeah, I don't I
1: mean, want store credit from Ghost Town.
2: No, <laughs> I don't want more. I want less what Ghost are you supposed Town. To do with that.
1: But what's fun as heck? <laughs> Saying what's up to the government,
2: we gotta say what's up to the government.
1: The mayors. Now I know we're a little past Black Friday, but they picked up some good old stuff. Ooh, some deals! Mm-hmm. Great. Picking up a ten-dollar Tiffany
2: necklace that's <laughs> absolutely <laughs> legit. Oh my god! Totally, legit. Uh, totally legit.
1: Cat Joselle.
2: Cat, nice work.
1: Getting the absolute last (laughs) actual Mona Lisa, the original. (laughs) The
2: last Mona Lisa? It's the the last one. In a Louvre.
1: Going out of business sale. (laughs) Holy shit. Art is dead.
2: (laughs) Wow. Great find.
1: Charlie Gilbert.
2: Nice work. Legendary, I'd say.
1: Beating the stampede. Getting their grubby mitts Mm -hmm. on... An actual working legitimate time machine,
2: $24.99. Wow, wow. what mall did that come from?
1: Uh, it Is it, it old was old No, it was a Best Buy.
2: Oh, sweet. Nobody
1: looked. <laughs> <laughs> try looking. <laughs> try going to Best Buy and looking. <laughs> okay, try going into a brick and mortar store.
2: Oh, wow, wow.
1: Ashley Matson did.
2: <laughs> well done, well done.
1: Getting their hands on a brand spanking new iPhone 5, out-of-the-box, special, <laughs> spent way too much money on it.
2: <laughs> iPhone 5? <That's...
1: laughs> 5, 5X.
2: Five That's Pro. incredible.
1: 5, <laughs> Whoa. 5X Pro.
2: You guys are, what a fucking haul.
1: Stephen Bates.
2: Wow. Y- you guys did really great. This is an incredibly successful Black Friday for you all. Congratulations. You're my heroes. Way to get out there. Put on your coats. Go through the parking and the doors and the receipts and the credit cards and the crowds. Thank you.
1: And the one ringing them up?
2: Of course. Of course, of course, of course. The puppet master? That's right. She actually invented Black Friday.
1: Our governor avian noble. noble so you want no ads no chit chat just the good stuff bonus episodes you want to burn through it you yeah. want to rock this holiday you, do. you want to get away from the fam you do. or get closer to the fam or fun. you want to get rid of the fam play yeah. this out loud they'll, they'll hate it <laughs> <laughs> they'll hate you, it they'll
2: get bored and they will leave
1: head on over to patreon.com slash ghost town pod okay, you want to get back into it let's do it
2: Rasputin's three kids, the ones who lived past infancy, Matronya, Varvara, and Dmitri, lived with their mother until 1913. But when Rasputin got deep with the court of Russia, he brought his beloved daughters to St. Petersburg with him. The elitist Smolny Institute rejected the girls due to their low social status, so they attended the Steblin-Karmensky Private Preparatory School. The girls lived in walking distance of their father's residence, their brother Dmitri, on the other hand, was not interested in living in the city. He stayed home with his mother and lived as a farmer. So Rasputin began to gradually introduce his daughters to their new circle of friends and lifestyle, being best friends with the Romanovs. The girls became fast friends with the Romanov daughters themselves. Matrya soon swapped her lower class name for the more sophisticated Maria, and the sisters thrived in St. Petersburg. Maria was briefly engaged during World War I to a Georgian officer named Pankhadzi. It didn't materialize into a marriage, but she was still fully immersing herself into culture. Maria loved her French classes, something that would be helpful to her later in her life. She loved the opera. She loved the circus. Varvara was the younger daughter, quieter, more studious, and she herself loved the cinema. On December 17, 1916, the girls reported their father missing to Russian authorities. After a boot and traces of blood were detected on the Bolshoi-Petrovsky Bridge, Rasputin's body was discovered. Maria and Rasputin's former secretary believed the spurned homosexual advances of Felix Yusupov instigated the attack, not a power grab. I'm not sure that I believe that, but I don't think we'll ever know for sure. So after Rasputin died, the imperial family planned to build a church over his grave site. And while they didn't seem to attend their father's funeral, the Tsarina paid for Varvara and Maria's black mourning dresses. Lavish, luxurious, they still were a part of the court. Maria would go on to say, quote, I love my father as much as others hate him. I have not the strength to make others love him. After their father's death, the two girls moved in with their French teacher and were granted 62,000 rubles by the Romanovs, a pretty good allowance. Tsar Nicholas told the girl's mother, quote, I will become the second father to your beautiful daughters. Alex and I always loved them as our own daughters. May they continue to study in Petrograd, and I will make sure that they do not need anything. But of course, that wouldn't last forever. When the Romanovs abdicated, Maria and Varvara were stripped of their titles and rights and accused of being, quote, malignant elements. They were soon imprisoned, but freed by Boris Soloviev, an admirer of their late father. Apparently, Rasputin pressured Boris and Maria to marry, even though the two were not attracted to each other and actually actively disliked each other. Soloviev, a graduate of a school of mysticism who was very into seances and contacting the spirit world, quickly emerged as Rasputin's successor after his murder. And the two, despite their dislike for each other, would talk to Rasputin. Nicholas and Alexandra, the fall of the Romanov dynasty, quotes a passage from Maria's diary, in which she believed her deceased father compelled her to marry Soloviev. Quote, Daddy spoke to us again. Why do they all say the same thing? Love Boris. You must love Boris. I don't like him at all. But he helped Maria, and her deceased dad wanted it to be so, so eventually Maria and Boris did marry. During the revolution itself, the sisters went back to their Pokrovskoye home to live with their mother and brother. Soon after, Maria and Boris left for Paris, and in 1919, 17-year-old Varvara became a clerk in the nearby city of Tumen. She was miserable there, but needed to provide for herself and her down-and-out family. She was also offered sex work, but continuously refused. In February of 1924, Varvara wrote Maria a letter, sharing her frustration, her desperation, and her state of mind. Here's a little bit of it. Quote, dear, dear Marochka, how have you been? I didn't write to you in so long because I didn't have money, and you can't buy a stamp without money. In general, life becomes worse and worse every day. You think and cherish the dream that you will one day live well, but again, it's only a mistake. And all thanks to our friends, such as my employer, Vitkin and similar people, they are all liars and nothing more. They only promise such a distance to work is a horror It takes an entire hour and a quarter to walk there because I have no money for the tram. Lord, how hard it is. The soul is torn to pieces. Why was I born? But I am reassured by the fact that there are so many of us who are unemployed and that we are all just honest people trying to preserve our dignity. Pretty rough. Pretty rough state of mind. In 1925, Varvara left Tumen for Moscow, where she died. Some say she contracted a bad case of tuberculosis. Some say she was poisoned. Either way, everything was against her. She was working hard in a dark, damp basement, and there were many people looking to destroy her. She was still in Russia, and Rasputin's legacy could not have been worse. So Varvara Rasputin's story ends in Moscow, where she dies alone in 1925. Dmitry Their brother, his wife and children, and their mother, Praskovia, were eventually deported to Selkard to work in a forced labor camp in the frigid Arctic Circle. The Bolsheviks had taken over. Nobody liked the name Rasputin, and the family was actively being destroyed by the powers that be. Dmitri, Praskovia, and their family were slowly worked to death, and the entire Rasputin lineage was dead by 1933. All except for Maria. This is where the episode takes another turn. So Maria survives. Her and her husband, Boris Soloviev, go to Paris and have two daughters, Tatiana and Maria, named for the Grand Romanov Duchesses. Maria was desperate for a way to support herself and her daughters and transcend her family's reputation. But surprisingly, her famous last name would be her salvation. At this point, tales of Rasputin's death became entertainment, convoluted, overblown, and Maria herself was part of the lore. Maria Rasputin wrote, the tragedy of my father's life and death, to be brought face to face on the stage with actors who were impersonating him and his murderers. Every time I have to confront my father on the stage, a pang of poignant memory shoots through my heart, and I could break down and weep. Although she had never danced before, like I said, Maria was desperate and cashed in, getting herself a job as a cabaret dancer. She took lessons and eventually got better, and eventually joined Bush Circus as a headline cabaret dancer in 1929. Maria Rasputin then traveled throughout Europe with different circuses and picked up some things. One of these things? Pony showmanship, where in January 1933 she performed in Cirque du Verre with her Pony Act. Another thing? Lion taming. In 1935, she found work in the Hagdenback wallace Circus, based in Peru, Indiana. The circus toured America, and Maria acted one season as a lion tamer, where she was billed as, quote, the daughter of the famous mad monk whose feats in Russia astonished the world. Yes, also, there are actual videos of her taming lions. And yes, it is insane. An interviewer once asked her if she minded being in a cage with animals, and she replied, flippantly, Why not? I have been in a cage with Bolsheviks. When her circus toured America, customs officials denied Maria Rasputin's daughter's entry, and said Maria herself had to leave in 90 days. Maria Rasputin's daughters lived the rest of their lives in Europe and her husband eventually died there shortly after this incident, but Rasputin herself remained in the United States even after she retired from the circus, something she did in 1935 after being mauled by a giant Himalayan black bear. Eventually, Maria Rasputin married another man named Gregory Bernardsky, a former member of the white Russian army who she'd known in childhood and had inexplicably run into again in Miami. Although they divorced in 1946, Rasputin was able to become a U.S. citizen and moved to Los Angeles, California. And she even gave back to her new country, working as a factory worker and riveter through World War II and until 1955, when she had to retire because she was too old to do the job. Of course, 1955, Red Scare, people speculated that Maria was a communist, but of course she was disgusted by this thought. Repulsed by it, and the accusation publicly horrified her. She denounced communism in 1949 and wrote a letter to the LA Times wherein she stated that quote, I am constantly being prosecuted and branded a communist due to my name being Maria Rasputin, daughter of Gregory Rasputin, known as the Mad Monk of Russia. I left Russia 28 years ago and am now a naturalized American citizen, for which privilege I thank God every night as I love the United States of America from the bottom of my heart. I wish to announce publicly that I am not a communist, even though my name is Maria Rasputin, daughter of Gregory Rasputin. In Los Angeles, the retired circus performer subsisted on social security benefits, teaching Russian, and babysitting jobs. Of course, she wrote several books about her dad and occasionally gave interviews. In 1968, she claimed to be a psychic and said that Betty Ford spoke to her in a dream. As for capitalizing on her father and her last name, she continuously wanted to emphasize that she only wrote books and did interviews to clear her father's name and nothing more. In an interview she gave while still a lion tamer, she says, If I thought myself capable of undertaking a literary career, I should not today be struggling to earn my daily bread as a trainer of wild animals. It is my desire to consecrate myself to a task direct the whole of my life towards one goal, that of giving back to my father his true character. Maria had two pet dogs whom she called Yusu and Pav after Felix Yusupov, the man who killed her father, and maybe even made advances towards him. Dark names for dogs. In any case, she lived peacefully and thriftily in Silver Lake, California until her death in 1977. Maria Rasputin's last of her three books, Rasputin, the Man Behind the Myth, was a personal deep dive into her life, published shortly after she died. Some thought she was not being truthful in the book, thinking her claims were embellished or flat-out lies. And of course, while many came forward claiming to be a surviving Romanov, others did the same with Rasputin. Before her death, she said she recognized Anna Anderson as Grand Duchess Anastasia Nikolaevna of Russia, a claim she would later recant. She also claimed that, again, she was the only, last surviving Rasputin, and there was none other but her. Maria Rasputin is buried in Angeles Rosendale Cemetery in the Pico Union District of Los Angeles. While some think that Rasputin's outlandish, tragic, sad, and glorious life ended in 1916, I would strongly disagree. Rasputin's daughters, especially Maria, are these wonderful, strange tragic extensions of the Mad Monk's insane legacy, and a distorted, somewhat over-the-top version of Russians' own transformation and evolution into the modern era.